All right, last time we uh, we talked about uh, the opening of the first six seals in chapter six of Revelation. Um, the, the first signs of judgment, uh, they, they've been seen and uh, the book is being opened by the Lamb. Uh, we saw the four severe judgments that that are going to be marching out against mankind in the in the form of four horsemen. As John sees the same picture that Zechariah saw in Zechariah chapter six. Um, so we, we we made that connection last time. Uh, but at the end of our study in Revelation uh, chapter six, uh, a question was asked. We were we were, were asked who can stand in the midst of the storm of this this um, this judgment. Uh, this judgment is going to be poured out upon the land. The answer to that question is the subject of chapter seven here. Chapter seven is kind of a uh, a pause in the judgments. the The seventh seal won't be opened until the beginning of chapter uh, chapter eight. Is an interlude here where we are given the answer to that question. Um, we're going to see the same thing as we look into the trumpet judgments as well. There's a six six trumpets and then an interlude. Uh, it's going to be a longer interlude, and then the seventh trumpet is blown. Um, but this interlude here in, in chapter 7, it, it shows that there are people who will not face the wrath of an angry God. Uh, there are people who indeed have kept covenant with God and are protected uh, from the judgment that's coming. These are the 144,000, and I'm sure you've heard that before you've heard about the 144,000 if you've ever had uh, those folks come to your door on Saturday mornings wanting to hand out pamphlets and books to you you probably heard all kinds of viewpoints about who these 144,000 were Uh, but today we're going to do our best to decipher the symbolism that's here in Revelation and we're going to do it based on the text itself and the Old Testament allusions from 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 which it's it's drawn the same way we've been interpreting the book up until this point um once again I, I probably tell you every time but you probably need your bible you probably need a notebook you need a comfortable seat in the saddle you need to write down uh the references that i give i may not quote i may not read them uh all but i may just make reference to them you need to go look them up make sure i'm telling you what uh i'm telling you the 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 right things i have been known to misquote misquote bible verses and tell you it was isaiah 42 1 when i meant ezekiel 42 1 so you need to write it down and check it out uh you need to think through these things and and, and test everything that you hear from everyone and uh you know once again, I need to say we probably all we all need to come to the text of Revelation and and eschatology in general with humility and grace. These are not issues to argue and and divide over. And I've said that over and over again. Um, so uh, we get to the text number one, verse one in, in chapter seven. After this, these are on the heels of the opening of the the sixth seal. Uh, And the question that was asked in chapter 6, who can stand against the wrath of the Lamb? Um, It says, after this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind might blow on earth or sea or against any tree. Uh, First of all, the words after this or after these things, it's not a time marker as if the judgments in chapter 6 have already taken place and now that's over so the events of chapter 7 are happening um the after this is a is a marker as we're going to see throughout revelation uh not of time but of sequence in which john sees the vision john says after i saw that vision 
I see this vision. Chapter 7 is is the next vision that John sees. It's it's not uh, we're going to see this as we we look closer into the get deeper into the book of Revelation. Uh, it's not chronological. Uh, it's actually circular. It goes it goes back recapitulating and intensifying the the judgments that it that it shows. But it's not it's not linear and chronological like this happens. Then this happens. Then this happens like a news report as uh, of the end times, like a, a journalist would uh, document for you or a historian would document for you how the end will come about. Um, that's how we tend to want to read Revelation. But that's not the case. It's not the way it was written. It's not the way apocalyptic literature in general uh, was written. So. Right here in the first uh, first three verses, uh, we're going to see that the uh, the judgments that we have already heard announced in chapter six are going to be held back. So uh, to you know, uh, uh, they're going to be held back so something else can happen first. And so um, it, it makes sense to to understand that these are not chronological events. Those judgments happen now. This happens uh, because it's going to say that those judgments themselves are going to be held back. Um, the four horsemen are riding out, and the question was asked, <clears throat> you know, in the world, who in the world is going to be able to stand when these judgments go forth and God pours out His wrath? And and this is this is the answer, the vision that John receives, the answer to that question. These angels. These four angels, excuse me, standing on the four corners of the earth. Um, we've talked about this before, but I would translate it land. Um, you can listen to our previous discussions on the meaning of the word gay, the Greek word gay. It, it's in the context uh, as it pertains to the land. Uh, it, it references uh, in the Old Testament uh, Septuagint, which is what the New Testament authors quote more often. Um, I've said this before, but I'll just go back just to refresh your memory. Uh, if you've ever noticed that Old Testament quotations in your New Testament, uh, uh, by in your New Testament, don't exactly match word for word the Old Testament quotation in your English translation, uh, usually it's uh, it's because the New Testament authors more more likely than not, more often than not, almost exclusively. Uh, quote the the Greek Old Testament, the Septuagint, whereas your English translation is translated from the Hebrew, and there's nothing wrong with the Hebrew or anything. But they uh, they were the New Testament authors. The gospel had spread out, and they were writing to um, they were writing to an audience of of both Jew and Gentile, and Greek was the common language. So whenever they referenced the land, Joshua came and took the land, and he I'm going to give you the land, and God promised Moses the land. Whenever they used that phraseology it was always understood that they were talking about the promised land they were talking about the land that god had promised and it was always translated with that word that word gay um so um the in my estimation it doesn't mean that john thinks the earth is flat to say the four corners of the land or anything like that some people have actually said that but uh, but prob- probably, and I can't prove this, but it probably references the four points of the compass. Uh, but you can see in the Old Testament text where God tells his people that he's going to bring them from the four corners of the earth and things like that. Uh, interestingly enough, um, in Ezekiel, which we have you know, already seen John use extensively in Revelation, Ezekiel 7 verses 1 through 2, he uses the same phrase to speak of judgment coming upon the whole land of Israel. Uh, it says in Ezekiel 7, 1 and 2, it says, The word of the Lord came to me, and you, O son of man, thus saith the Lord God to the land of Israel, an end. The end has come upon the four corners of the land. 
Now the end is upon you, and I will send my anger upon you. I will judge you according to your ways and punish you for all your abominations. So same phrase that it was used. Now, here is one of the instances where the word gay uh, is uh, um, in the Greek Old Testament. The word uh, the word in Hebrew is Eretz, but and it can mean land. It can mean land. It can mean the whole earth, depending on the context. So I don't want to just say, oh, this word means land. Uh, when you're reading, when you're reading another language, context is uh, context defines words, and so there are many verses, many sections of scripture where the word "gay" definitely means uh, the whole earth. So I don't want to make it sound like I'm uh, I'm uh, uh, telling you something that people have missed for a bunch of for a bunch of years. Um, in different contexts, the word can mean earth. It can mean the whole earth. It can mean just the promised land. It can mean ground. It can mean, uh, depending on what context it was used, it can mean all these different things. My point in saying this is it depends on the context that you are reading it in. If we automatically assume that this is a judgment upon the entire planet. We're going to translate it earth. That's just a fact. If we, if we understand that it is a covenant judgment on, uh, those in the land, we are going to translate it land. It's the, it's the same thing that they did in Ezekiel seven verses one and two that I just read to you. The translators, the ones who translated in English obviously recognized the context and said the end has come upon the four corners of the land and they translated land rather than earth. It could just as easily read the end has come upon the four corners of the earth, but they recognized it says the land of Israel right before that. So they recognized that and translated it land. So, uh, in Isaiah eleven twelve, you know, God promises to gather his people from the four corners of the earth when that's the word gay as well. So, it, and it means the whole land. So, um, more than likely what he's talking about here is not, is just the whole thing. He's saying, so he's saying, you know, when he says the four corners, he doesn't mean they're actually, it's a square and they're four corners. He means the whole, from the whole, from one side to the other. When he says, I'm going to gather my people from the four corners of the the earth, he means from everywhere. When he says, I'm putting my angels and I'm going to bring judgment in Ezekiel 7, which I read to you, he says, the end has come upon the four corners of the land. He means the whole land. And so it's a way of saying the whole thing. So when it says the angels stood on the four corners of the land, it's going to say they're holding back uh, the judgments. We read that in Revelation 1. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds uh, of the earth that no wind might blow on the earth or sea or against any any tree. What he said, what we're seeing there is the angels that are holding back these winds. We're going to talk about who these winds are. Uh, but what I wanted you to see is we have to, once again, look at the other things in the context and background to make a decision as to whether we're talking about covenant judgment upon the land or we're talking of a worldwide, um, planet-wide destruction of famine, war, and, and plague. Um, plus, there, there are also those who say that these judgments are always ongoing throughout the church age, uh, the amillennialists. We'll get to, we'll get to that. You know, when we talk about the millennium Uh, and, you know, in reality, indeed, they are, you know, there are we see wars and famines and and all kind of things all the way through, you know, from the beginning all the way to all the way to now. Uh, And I'm coming from the perspective that this judgment was directly fulfilled in the first century destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. So 
Um, but but we also need to see that this event will foreshadow and point to the end, the consummation, the end times, the, the actual end of history. Um, but there's also a direct fulfillment to those who actually receive the letter. You can't say that this letter had no meaning whatsoever for the first century audience because it just pointed to something that would happen 2000 years from now. Um, John said, these things, I'm writing to you the things that must soon come to pass. In the introduction to this series, we talked about the different positions of, you know, Revelation's interpretation. One of those was called the spiritual or idealistic interpretation. Go back and listen to the introduction and I'll explain all that. This one is the one that's usually associated with a millennial view of the the end, and, and we'll explain that when we get to the millennium. But uh, this view, if you remember, the spiritual or idealistic, it says that Revelation is speaking um, spiritually about these of the kinds of events that are that are going to be going on throughout the whole age and every generation. And to be honest, there's a lot of validity for this application of these scriptures because. Indeed, this, I mean, the scriptures apply to every generation. Every scripture is for profitable. Um, but prophecy in the Revelation specifically says that this is a prophecy uh, in the very beginning of the chapter one. Uh, prophecy in the Old Testament is not pure, is never pure spiritual application. There's always direct fulfillment. Uh, prophecy may... Uh, be directly fulfilled immediately in the time of the people who heard it, but also ultimately point to a coming fulfillment that would consummate all things. But there's always a direct fulfillment. Let me give you an example real quick. And I'm not I didn't even mean to go into all this. But if you look at uh, Isaiah chapter seven, Isaiah chapter nine, where it talks about Emmanuel to us, there's going to be a child born in the direct reference that Isaiah, Isaiah is making. He's talking about an actual child that would be born during the time that uh, uh, Syria was attacking Israel and all those things. But, of course, we know that that also, even though it had direct fulfillment, it also pointed to a final fulfillment that would be actually Christ who would come. He is the one who is Emmanuel, God with us. He is the child that's born, a son given, a wonderful counselor and all those things. So what we see here is that we can't we can't just read prophecy as a. as an application to to everybody in all times there's always a fulfillment there's always a fulfillment whether it's whether you believe it was fulfilled in the first century or whether you believe it will directly be fulfilled in the the in the the last you know few years of the of history there's going there is a direct fulfillment one way or the other um, there is application for all generations, even if you believe it was fulfilled in the first century or if it won't be fulfilled until the end of history. Uh, we still apply it to ourselves. It's still useful for instruction and all those things. But it can't just be that because no other prophecy is. I hope that makes sense. I feel like I've been going in circles. But what I'm trying to say is that if it is a prophecy and it is, it says that it is in first in the in the first chapter then there is a fulfillment, a direct fulfillment. Um, there's application for all generations, no matter when that fulfillment is, but there is a fulfillment. So we can't just, uh, we can't just spiritualize it and say, well, it's, you know, using language that's a- applicable for all of us everywhere. Of course it is. That's what scripture does, but there's also a direct fulfillment. There's always a direct fulfillment. So, 
Oh, man. Back to the text. I know that was a long way around the block. So here in Revelation, the angels are said to be holding back the four winds so that they wouldn't harm the earth, the sea, or the trees. What are the four winds? Well, the short answer is that they're the four horsemen that we saw in the last chapter. The four judgments that we saw in in chapter 6. Remember that the four horsemen that we saw in chapter 6 are based on Zechariah chapter 6. Uh, And those horsemen go forth bringing judgment on those who harm God's people. Uh, And in Zechariah 6, verse 5, Zechariah himself is told that these four groups of horses, they're groups of horses in Zechariah, they are called the four winds. He says, let me read it to you, Zechariah 6, 5. It says, these are going out to the four winds of heaven after presenting themselves before the Lord of the earth. Um, and, And this isn't the only place in Scripture where Four winds are associated with judgment. When God promises judgment on Elam in Jeremiah forty nine thirty six, he says, And I will bring upon Elam the four winds from the four quarters of heaven, and I will scatter them to all those winds, and there shall be no more uh, there shall be no nation to which those driven out of Elam shall not come. So what we're seeing here, as we've already said already, but uh, I just wanted to make sure that I prove um, everything that I that I can to you is that God is holding back the judgments that have already been described. Uh, he's holding them back for a set time. Something has to happen first before the wrath and judgment of God is loosed upon the land uh, in, in its fullness. Uh, what you see here is that. Uh, even in the devastating judgments that we've uh, that we've already seen announced, uh, God's still in control of all these things. Even when it doesn't seem like it, I mean, uh, it's an incredibly gruesome and apocalyptic war is coming against God's uh, the people that have broke covenant with God. And, and in the midst of all this, the church of Jesus Christ needs to understand that these things they're not mistakes. Uh, he hasn't lost control. That's why he wrote those letters to those seven churches to let them know he he's still on the throne. He hadn't lost control. He's still king of kings. These things are under his control. Even when when persecution spreads and runs rampant through the church, we're going to see that uh, it's God's hand moving in all these things for the good of his kingdom. Even when we're called upon to to suffer for his name. So that's what we're going to see here. The wrath and judgment of God is held back. So the people of God, the true people of God can be sealed and protected. That's what we're going to see in this chapter. Verse two and three says, then I saw another angel. Okay. The four angels at the four corners are holding back the four winds of judgment. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God. And he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been, given power to harm the earth and sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. Uh, so the four, hen- four the foreheads, the four winds are held back and another angel comes from the rising of the sun, which is the east. It's translated from the east in some, some translations to tell them what must happen first. Um, is there any significance in the direction from which the angel comes? Uh, a lot of people think so. Uh, many people point to the fact that God's activity comes from the east, you know, in texts like Isaiah 41 and 46, Ezekiel 43. You can read those texts for yourself and decide, but it doesn't really make any difference in the interpretation of this text. The point here is that the angel carries with him the seal of God and, and judgment is commanded to be withheld until the servants of God are sealed. So the obvious question we should ask first is, what is this seal? Uh, well, there are a few different views as to the seal. So uh, I'm going to give you, let me just give you the main three as I see them. 
Uh, first, some see this seal as a protection from physical harm. Uh, they won't be physically harmed. Others say that, uh, you know, it's a protection from demonic activity that we're going to see as we continue through the book of Revelation. Um, uh, there's a third view that says the seal is, is simply protection from believers losing their faith. Uh, in other words, the seal is God's provision for them to um, to uh, to persevere through the coming tribulations. We've seen that over in the letters. It says to those who overcome, to those who conquer, I will give this and I'll get that. And that's what this seal is. But to be honest, there is a sense in which all three of these things could partially be true. Um, God indeed protects his own from harm in the sense that whatever happens is because God allows it, uh, even if it does mean their martyrdom. Um, so really, how are we to interpret what's going on here? I, I hope you know the answer to that question already based on the way we've interpreted every, everything so far. We look at the background from the Old Testament. That's how we do it. First, the most relevant passage to which this is referring is got to be, and um, almost everyone's going to agree on this, is Ezekiel 9, verses 1 through 9. Let me read that whole text to you, and you can see the uh, similarities to what we're seeing here. It says, Ezekiel 9 says, Then he cried in my ears with a loud voice, saying, Bring near the executioners of the city. He's talking about Jerusalem each with his destroying weapon in his hand. And behold, six men came from the direction of the upper gate, which faces north, each with his weapon uh, for slaughter in his hand. And with them was a man clothed in linen with a writing case at his waist. And they went in and stood beside the bronze altar. Now the glory of the God of Israel had come up from the cherub on which it rested to the threshold of the house. And he called to the man clothed in linen who had the writing case at his waist. And the Lord said to him, pass through the city, through Jerusalem, and put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and groan over all the abominations that are committed in it. And to the others, he said in my hearing, pass through the city after him and strike. Your eyes shall not spare. You shall show no pity. Kill old men outright, young men and maidens, little children and women. But touch no one on whom is the mark and begin at the sanctuary. And it goes on and on and on with that. So as you can see, Ezekiel 9 uh, the passage is directly referenced by what John is seeing. He is seeing he's seeing the same thing. He's seeing the same vision, basically, that that Ezekiel is seeing. There's judgment coming upon the city of Jerusalem. Uh, but that judgment is held back until God says, I want you to go and I want you to put a mark. I want you to put a seal uh, upon those who are who are uh, who are faithful for my people. Uh, in the Ezekiel passage, God is no doubt God determined destructive judgment on Jerusalem. But first, he he commands them to put a mark on those who it said those who groan over the abominations. Uh, the sealing of the faithful in Ezekiel was God's protection over his people before the destruction of the city by the Babylonians. So this in the same context is what we see in Revelation. The sealing of God's of God's people is his protection uh, over his own before the destruction of the city by the Romans. So here it seems like it seems like it's physical protection from God's judgment. At the very least, it is protection from the wrath 
of God. They will not experience the wrath and judgment, even though, you know, they may, some may experience the trials and tribulations, the martyrdoms and all those things. They will not experience the judgment of God. Um, you know, even if they get caught up in the things and suffer and their suffering is redemptive, it's not for punishment. Um, but there's another possible allusion to what John is uh, seeing. It's in the garments of Aaron, the high priest himself. If you uh, if you go back and look at the priestly garments that Aaron is told to um, told to make and wear in Exodus twenty eight thirty six through thirty eight, uh, they include a sign, which is it's called a seal that was on the turban of the high priest where his forehead was, and it read holy to the Lord. The text says. You shall also make a plate. This is uh, God explaining Aaron's high priestly dress. You shall also make a plate of pure gold and shall engrave on it like the engravings of a seal, holy to the Lord. You shall fasten it on a blue cord and it shall be on the turban. It shall be at the front of the turban. It shall be on Aaron's forehead. And Aaron shall take away the iniquity of the holy things which the sons of Israel consecrate with regard to their holy gifts. And it shall be always on his forehead that they may be accepted before the Lord. You see it? The seal on his forehead. It said holy to the Lord. And it was there so that in representation of um, the people, they would be holy to the Lord. So here the, the seal symbolized God's holiness. It was placed on the forehead of the priest. It was God's righteousness. It gave them a perfect standing before God so he could intercede for them. Uh, these people in Revelation are sealed with righteousness and holiness so that they are righteous before God. They are his people. Um, and then, of course, you got the same picture presented in Deuteronomy 6, verses 6 through 8, where all of God's people were sealed with the law of God on their hand and on their forehead. Uh, interestingly enough, we're going to we're going to see very soon that these are the exact two same places that the mark of the beast are set on on uh, on unbelievers. So remember that <clears throat> uh, Deuteronomy six, verse six through eight says these words, which I am commanding you today shall be on uh, on your ear. You shall teach them. Uh, you shall teach them diligently to your sons and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise up. Here it is. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontals on your forehead or frontlets between your eyes is the actual text. But frontlets on your forehead. So we can't, <clears throat> of course, we can't dismiss the fact that the Holy Spirit himself, you know, is called the seal. Of God placed in on believers, you can see that in Second Corinthians one twenty two, Ephesians one thirteen, Ephesians four thirty. Um, <clears throat> it is by the Holy Spirit that believers are sealed unto the day of redemption. So, whatever <clears throat> you see this seal as in Revelation, it 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 is obvious. It's obvious from the Old Testament text that it symbolizes righteousness before God. It's God's protection. His it's his seal of ownership. He knows those who are his. Uh, later in chapter 14 of Revelation, we're going to see that these same people are said to have the name of the Lamb and the name of the Father written on their foreheads. So in chapter 14, we're going to see the same the same group of people, and we're actually told what the, what it is that's on their forehead. It's the name of the Lamb, the name of God on their forehead. Uh, these people are marked out as belonging to the Lamb. They're belonging to Christ. They're protected from the wrath of God. And we <clears throat> we are also, um, we're going to see that uh, 
I don't want to give too much away, but <clears throat> we're going to say that all men, all men everywhere, are either you're one of two things. You're either sealed by the Lamb or you're marked by the beast. It's one of the two things. So a lot of people talk about the mark of the beast, and we'll get there, and we'll talk about all the different, you know, fruity interpretations there are of the mark. But if you, when discussing the mark, always remember this. <clears throat> When you define the mark of the beast, you also have to define the seal of the lamb. If the mark of the beast is a microchip that goes in your skin or something like that, then tell me what the seal of the lamb is because they're directly presented uh, opposite each other. Uh, they one that one uh, is juxtaposed against another. And so if if. If uh, the mark of the beast is a number on your credit card, then you need to explain to me what the seal of the lamb is. Maybe it's maybe it's your I don't know. Maybe it's your checking account number. I, I don't know. That's kind of strange. But <clears throat> whatever you say, the mark of the beast is. You got to also tell me what the seal of the lamb is, because one, you're either sealed with the lamb or you're marked with the beast. One of the two. Uh, so let's get down to it then. Uh, let's look at the, who these people are. Uh, verses four through eight. Um, I'm going to read all at once. It says, uh, I was thinking about not reading it for a second, but I probably need to read it because it's kind of important about who the tribes are. So it says, and I heard the number. Did he see the number that was sealed? No, he heard the number. It's important. He heard the number. And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000, sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. 12,000 from the tribe of Judah were sealed, 12,000 from the tribe of Reuben, 12,000 from Gad, 12,000 from Asher, 12,000 from Naphtali, uh, 12,000 from Manasseh, 12,000 from Simeon, 12,000 from Levi, 12,000 from Issachar, 12,000 from Zebulun, 12,000 from Joseph, 12,000 from Benjamin. Now, just reading through that, you would think, wow, hey, all 12 tribes. But you need to notice that John, like I said before, John heard the number. Is 144,000. That's going to be very important. He heard their full number spoken, and then he heard their number broken down from each tribe. Uh, the identity of these 144,000, my goodness, it has caused endless amount of controversy, and there's probably going to be some here as well. Um, people, some state that uh, these are actual national Jews at the end of history after the church has been raptured. Uh, needless to say, I, I have serious problems with that interpretation just from the text. Uh, we see in uh, in chapter 14 that they have the lamb's name on them. I mean, they are they are of the lamb. The seal that is upon them is the name of God and the name of the lamb. So obviously they trust in Christ. So, I mean, doesn't that make doesn't that make them part of the church them, themselves if they trust in Christ? I mean, that's just one of the one of the deals. The 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 rebuttal to that objection you know, that that has been clearly enumerated for lots and lots of years is usually that after the rapture, the gospel is no longer the gospel of Jesus Christ, but it's returned to being the gospel of the kingdom that the that the Jesus was preaching to the Jews. It's the gospel of the kingdom now. It's not the gospel of uh, death, burial and resurrection. Um, if I have to really explain why I consider that blasphemous, then you probably shouldn't even be listening to this podcast. You probably need to go listen to something else. But if you need a verse, Paul said that he was preaching the gospel of the kingdom when he went around preaching the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. In Acts 20, verse 25, Paul said he's, he was preaching the kingdom to him. Uh, 
when he was going around preaching Jesus. I mean, and besides this, uh, later in this same chapter, we're going to see that they have made their robes white with the blood of the lamb. There's there's only one gospel. I, uh, it might be a jump too too far because most people see a distinction between the 144,000 and the great multitude. So let's get there one step at a time. Um, another view is that these are Jewish Christians in the land during the first century as the impeding judgment of Israel approached and the Romans drew closer and closer. Uh, I think this could very well be true, and we're going to discuss this in a minute, but uh, there's one thing that I know for sure, and this is where many people are going to disagree with me, but we're going to see that this 144,000 is the same group uh, as the multitude, which can't be numbered. Uh, we're going to see them in a second. Uh, twice before, twice before, John has heard something spoken to him. But when he turned and looked, he saw something different. In chapter 1 of Revelation, he heard a voice like a trumpet. But when he turned, he saw one like a son of man. In chapter 5, he heard an elder say that the lion of the tribe of Judah. The lion of Judah is worthy to open the book. But when he turned to look at the lion of Judah, he didn't see a lion. He saw a lambs as if slain. So here we have the exact same thing, the exact same phraseology. John hears the number of the group of the tribe of Israel, 144,000. He hears 12,000 from this tribe, 12,000 from that tribe. But when he turns to look, he sees a multitude that no one can number from every tribe and nation. It's the same pattern that we've seen before. Um, but let's wait on that for just a second. Let's talk about why there there are 144,000. Because even when I said that, I felt that you know there's probably all kind of questions. Why are there 12,000? Why are there? Why does he mention each tribe's name and all those kind of things? So let's get all into that, and then we'll talk about the great multitude. Uh, you know, that that's going to be the question. If this is a diverse multitude, why does he hear a specific number? Why does he hear specific tribes? Uh, simply put, um, God's people are always associated in Scripture, the Old Testament, with the number 12. There were 12 sons of Jacob, 12 tribes of Israel, 12 apostles of Jesus. They're in Revelation uh, or even back in, in Joshua. There are 12 stones placed in the Jordan to commemorate the, the crossing of the 12 tribes. Uh, we could go on and on and on and on and on about the twelve number twelve in the Old Testament. Um, you know, we're going to see the, the twelve twelve stones at the foundation of the new city Jerusalem. There's twelve foundations. Uh, there, the the names of the twelve tribes and the twelve apostles are on the twelve foundations of the new Jerusalem. Uh, there are going to be twelve precious stones in each found. I mean, it's over and over and over again. And the number thousand was basic military unit, uh, <clears throat> military division of God's people in the Old Testament. You can uh, look at the outline that I provided at jasonblotta.com. You can look at the outline for all the verses that show this. But uh, even more than that, when we get to the end of Revelation, like I said, you know, the, the people of God in the new city of God, it's going to be 12 everything. You know, the 12 gates, 12 foundations, 12 names ascribed, 12 precious stones. Uh, the the city of New Jerusalem is described using multiples of 12 and multiples of a thousand, uh, just like the perfect people of God. That's my that's my premise here is that the reason he hears the number 144,000 and then hears 12,000 from each tribe is because God's people, he's seeing the perfect Israel as it has always meant 
to be. He's seeing the perfect representation of God's perfect people. Uh, they're always represented in multiples of 12 and 1,000. The, the, the city, once we get to the New Jerusalem in the end of Revelation, it's described using multiples of 12 and 1,000. Uh, the city in Revelation 21, 16, it's a perfect cube. Its height, its width, its length, it's all 12,000 stadia. That's the, the height of it, the length of it, the width of it. Now, if you're reading this verse, Revelation 21, 16, in the NASB, the New American Standard, unfortunately, they translate this as 1,500 miles, which I guess is technically correct, but it loses the reference to 12,000 that John is clearly showing us. It loses the... Uh, it loses the symbolism that he's showing us from the very beginning. And, the, you know, the, there's 12,000. The length of the city is 12,000. The width of the city is 12,000. The, the breadth of the city is 12,000. And he shows us there's 12,000 from each tribe. If you look at the wall of the city in Revelation 21:17, it's 144 cubits high. Uh, just like there are 144,000. That's 12 squared, 144 uh, these are the dimensions of the perfect Jerusalem as it was always meant to be, the new Jerusalem. So in the same way, the 144,000, which is 12 squared times 1,000, is the perfect picture of Israel. The way they were always supposed to be, they're dressed in military units numbered by tribe, the same way that they marched out to battle in the Old Testament. This is the perfect Israel of God, the way the perfect Israel uh, was always supposed to be. But the question is, are they literally Jews from each of these tribes? I mean, are they literally national Jewish people? Uh, you know, of course, many people are going to say that for the Old Testament prophecies to be fulfilled, they must be actual biological descendants of these tribes. But there's a huge problem with this view that a lot of people don't recognize. The problem is that if you take this view Two tribes are missing from the list. Uh, Dan and Ephraim are omitted from the list. Uh, instead, Joseph and Manasseh appear here. Uh, the The only restoration prophecy in the Old Testament, there are lots of restoration prophecies, but the only one that actually lists the tribes of Israel, uh, which are going to be restored, is in Ezekiel chapter 48. There's lots and lots of restoration prophecies. So, but the only one that actually lists the tribes is in Ezekiel 48, and it includes Dan, and it includes Ephraim. Uh, now, most likely, the reality is, and a lot of people agree on this, is that Dan is omitted. The tribe of Dan is omitted because they were associated with idolatry in Judges 18, uh, 1 Kings 12. Uh, and same thing for Ephraim and Hosea four, they're associated with idolatry. We don't know. We don't know. This is why they were omitted, but you know, it seems likely, but here's the problem. Here's the problem. If, even if we were to take the numbers in the tribes, literally that this list in revelation would exclude two tribes from the old Testament Israel. Uh, Joseph was broken into, into Ephraim Manasseh and, uh, Dan was present in the, in the, in the, in the list. And so we see that there's, there's a tribe, you know, take, take Joseph and Manasseh. Some people said that Ephraim, Joseph replaced Ephraim, but just take Dan, for instance, uh, those who claim that God's promises to the Jews must literally be fulfilled in giving them the earthly kingdom in the land of Israel in the end times. They must contend with the fact that not all the tribes are listed. 
there are some that are left out. I mean, how can this interpretation be correct if any by anyone's standards? The one of the tribes of Israel was Dan, and Dan is left out. Now, if you're going to point to idolatry and say, "Well, Dan was left out because of idolatry," I mean, that is the argument of all the people that says that say that's why God released his old covenant people in the first place was idolatry and that's what the most folks would uh, uh they they don't want to admit they don't want to no 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 god would never do that god can't you know uh uh keep with his covenant and you know uh break covenant with those and fulfill the judgments that are in Deuteronomy 28 29 and Leviticus 26 he can't do that because uh, of of the promises he made to God but then they'll turn right around and say well he did do that to Dan because Dan's not listening <laughs> it just doesn't make any sense to me um and but besides that in Revelation 14 we're going to see this 144,000 again and they're all male virgins I mean, it, it, Revelation 14, this 144,000 are said to be all male vir- virgins. I mean, are you seriously going to take that literally? So only only men of military age who have never had sex are included in those who are restored at the end. Um, and there aren't 12,001 in any tribe or or. 11,999 in any tribe, but they're exactly 12,000. I mean, I'm sorry. I just have, I have a hard time reading this prophetic apocalyptic literature like that. It seems pretty obvious that the number's meant to convey meaning beyond just uh, counting heads uh, of who these people are. Uh, these represent the perfect Israel of God, the way she was always meant to be, holy, chaste, uh, sealed by God, in covenant with him, obedient, following the Lamb, the name of Christ upon their foreheads. Um, but also remember that John heard the numbers, 144,000, but let's look at what he sees. In verse 9 and verse 10, it says, After this, after he heard the tribes enumerated, the 144,000 enumerated, he says, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every tribe, from all tribes. That includes the Jews, by the way, from all tribes, from all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits Sits on the throne and to the Lamb. John heard the number as 144,000, but when he looks, he sees a multitude that no one can number. And these people are from every tribe and nation. Now, when most people read this, they they take that to mean Gentiles. Look, they're from all these Gentile nations, but that's not what it says. It says from every tribe, from every nation. That's Jew and Gentile. The true Israel of God, who, uh, who named the name of Jesus. And have the Lamb's name on their forehead are from every tribe. They're united in Christ. They are uh, the Israel of God, as Paul said in Galatians 3.29. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring. That's what he said. If you are Christ, you are Abraham's offspring. That's Galatians 3.29. And you are heirs according to the promise. What promise? To the promise God made Abraham. And this multitude is the fulfillment of the promise made to Abraham. Remember that promise that his seed would be a blessing to all the nations and that he would be the father of many nations. All those who are in Christ are Abraham's seed. They're heir to the promise. They are the Israel of 
God. They are clothed in white robes. We've seen that image before. They have palm branches in their hands and they worship God on the throne and the lamb. Uh, there isn't any, by the way, there isn't any better picture of, of the church uh, of Jesus Christ. Um, they are, they are the ones clothed in white robes, worshiping the God on the throne, worshiping the lamb. Um, and it may interest you, it may interest you to know that in 66 AD, the Romans, with their auxiliary mounted attack, I, I told you about this, against Jerusalem under uh, a commander called Cestius. And for some reason, no one knows why, but the Romans withdrew from that attack. And before Rome had a chance to come back in full force as Vespasian came in uh, and was marching through the, the countryside, the Christians in Jerusalem, under the leadership of a man named Simeon, left the city and went to Pella. They heeded Jesus' advice and went. When they saw that Jerusalem surrounded, was surrounded by armies, they fled to the mountains, just like Jesus told them to do, and they left the city before the destruction came. Uh, the warning from Christ is given in the Olivet Discourse. Hey, you probably remember me reading it. It says, Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, this is in Matthew chapter 24, which is spoken of through the prophet Daniel, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand, then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. Whoever is on the housetop must not go down and get the things that are in his house. Whoever is in the field must not turn back to get his cloak. But woe to those who are pregnant and those who are nursing babies in those days. But pray that your flight will not be in the winter or on a Sabbath, for then there will be a great tribulation such as not has occurred since the beginning of the world till now, nor ever will, unless those days had been cut short, no life would have been saved, but for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. So what is the abomination of desolation, which has, you know, been the subject of many, many books? Uh, actually, it's a simple explanation. Luke tells us what the abomination of desolation is. Luke is writing to Gentiles, whereas Matthew has a pr predominantly Jewish audience. The abomination of desolation was a reference to Daniel. And so a Jewish audience would understand what that what that meant. Um, it was actually fulfilled in uh, Antiochus Epiphanius coming, and that's where the Maccabees and Hanukkah and all that comes from. Uh, but they would have known what Jesus meant by abomination of desolation. But Luke, writing to Gentiles, understood that his Gentile audience probably may not have read Daniel, may not have been you know raised in the prophecies of Daniel. So he explained it to them when he when he, in this same passage, Jesus is saying the same things. Instead of abomination of desolation, Luke says in Luke twenty one twenty, but when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies then recognize that her desolation is near and then he goes on to say you know flee to the mountains and you know the same things that uh, that um, Matthew recorded Matthew 24 we see that the Christians heeded his advice um, there was also when Vespasian uh, sieged the city um, there was also a time when Nero committed suicide. Vespasian left. Uh, there was a series of three emperors in a single year that they were all either assassinated or, or killed themselves or whatever. And uh, Vespasian went back and Vespasian was um, eventually made emperor. And there was this lull in the siege where uh, where also people left the city. And so. Many historians have written about this. Let me read. I'm going to read you a, a few quotes from Eusebius. Uh, Eusebius was a church historian. He wrote uh, uh, Ecclesiastical Histories, the name of his work. And um, it says the people of the church in Jerusalem, talking about the siege of Jerusalem in Ecclesi Ecclesiastical History, um, 
book three, section five, paragraph three. It says, The whole body, however, of the church at Jerusalem, having been commanded by divine revelation, uh, given to men uh, of approved piety there before the war, removed from the city and dwelt at a certain town beyond the Jordan called Pella. Here those that believed in Christ, having removed from Jerusalem as if holy men and entirely abandoned the royal city itself and the whole land of Judea, the divine justice for their crimes against Christ and his apostles finally overtook them, totally destroying the whole generation of these evildoers from the earth. So that was uh, uh, Eusebius. Uh, he he also said that uh, he also said that uh, after all those who believed in Christ had generally come to live in Perea in a city called Pella of the Decapolis, and so he talks about all the people that left the city. Um, there are other, you know, Epiphanius, uh, Eutychius of Alexandria, who mentioned the, the Christians leaving. Uh, even uh, Flavius Josephus that we've uh, <clears throat> that we've been talking about that was actually there, one of the historians that uh, that wrote from the from the first century. He talks about uh, he talks about this uh, this time when Cestius uh, just suddenly pulled his soldiers back and allowed uh, uh, people to get away for for no reason at all. In uh, in the Wars of the Jews, he he writes it happened. It then happened that Cestius was not conscious either how the besieged despaired of success nor how courageous the people were for him, and so he recalled his soldiers from the place and by despairing of any expectation of taking it. Without having received any disgrace, he retired from the city without any reason in the world. Uh, Josephus writes that as, as well, and, and so he talks about he talks about the the people being allowed to leave. There are different times during uh, the siege that Titus uh, allowed people to allowed people to leave, and it says that uh, you know in uh, in Jewish War uh, five ten uh, book five. Chapter 10, uh, section 1, it says Titus allowed a great number of people to go away into the country where they please. You know, and so there were people that were fleeing the city. Uh, and we are told by Eusebius uh, and, and different historians that the Christians were gone out of Jerusalem when, uh, when the actual destruction and, and all that took place. And they did so in heed of Christ's advice. It says when you see the city... When you see the city surrounded by armies, you know that the destruction's here. You flee to the mountains. You flee to the city. You don't go down and get your cloak. You, uh, you know, woe to those who are pregnant and and all that kind of stuff. And you go. Uh, and so, we see the fulfillment of all that in history. <clears throat> the uh, the believers <clears throat> indeed were protected from the judgment. They were. Uh, they uh, they ran from the city when they saw the city surrounded by armies and uh by all accounts by any account by any historical record uh we don't know of a single christian a single uh nazarene as they were called or christ follower that was uh, that was within the city walls when the when the destruction took place um so in verse 11 and 12 of Revelation, we're kind of running long. It says, And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be given to our God forever and ever. Amen. Uh, there isn't really 
Much explanation needed here. God's people have been sealed. They joined the chorus that we've seen in uh, chapter 4 and chapter 5 that worship the, the one on the throne and the lamb. Uh, and then in 13 and 14, it says, Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. So here is the church that was brought forth out of the tribulation, a remnant of uh, probably mostly Jewish Christians left in the city of Jerusalem. Uh, just like Jesus commanded, just like Jesus commanded, they left the city when they saw it surrounded by armies. And, and because of their continuing witness and the gospel going forth and the growth of the church of Jesus Christ through these Jewish Christians, uh, the church emerged uh, from the tribulation to encompass the entire world. Uh, you know, of course, there are tribulations in every age as the church is continually attacked. And to be honest, there there probably is going to be a culmination of uh, uh, a culmination of the world and the devil's attack, you know, at the end of history. But here specifically, John is writing to a first century church, telling them that even though they they see persecution growing more and more, God is God is still victorious and his church is still conquering. They are worshiping glory and power to God around his throne. Uh, very soon, the last remnants of the old covenant are going to be wiped away. And <clears throat> from the ashes of that tempest, uh, the true people of God who are in Jesus Christ, or both Jews and Gentiles, will stand in his presence, washed and made perfect in the blood of uh, uh, of Jesus Christ himself. Um, it says, therefore, they are before the throne and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. That's the end of chapter 7 of Revelation. So earlier in this chapter, we saw the saints holding these guys holding palm leaves that combined combined with this section leads many to see the fulfillment of um, the protection symbolized in the feast of tabernacles that we've seen see in the Old Testament. Uh, first, notice the therefore at the beginning of this section. Therefore, they are before the throne of God. That therefore is saying they are before the throne of God. The reason they're before the throne of God is because they have washed themselves white with the blood of the lamb. Uh, many people don't think of heaven this way, but what are they doing? It says, therefore, they're before the throne and they serve him day and night in his temp temple. I mean, service really is that heaven heaven's supposed to be me laying back resting you know angels feeding me grapes and laying on a beach somewhere but here the privilege of the believers is that they get to serve in the very presence of god no longer do they need a mediator they have christ jesus and they can come right into the holy of holies and serve christ the way only the high priest could in the old testament covenant but what christ has made open for them uh I mean, what a joy for those whose hearts been changed to serve him. We serve him already. Those who, of us who uh, have uh, have been born again and our heart has been uh, uh, made ready, it's been, uh, it's been changed to desire to serve him. We'll serve him day and night in his temple. And it says, and he will shelter them with his presence. The word, the word used is <clears throat> the word tabernacle. 
He will spread his tabernacle over them, uh, which means these believers will be in the very presence of God at all times. It's interesting to note that John uh, chapter one, verse 14, where John is talking about Jesus, of course, the word, the word becomes flesh. And it says the word became flesh and dwelt among us. He tabernacled among us. The words tabernacle. Most English translations are going to say he came and dwelt or lived among us. Uh, but it's the same word. He tabernacled among us this section uh it's talking about it's talking about the fulfillment of what the 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 feast of tabernacles the 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 greatest feast the end feast of the year when uh, they built booths to celebrate god's protection of them as they came out of egypt and all those things um it is it's a celebration of of who christ is he came and tabernacled among us and it says and god notice remember in the old testament you had to go into the tabernacle to be in the presence of god you had to go in you had to offer sacrifice you had to do the the different things and then it was only the high priest who could go actually into where the presence of God was and says now here where his people are he will spread his tabernacle over them he will spread it over them he will he will be where you are Um, and, and there's a lot of Old Testament passages that are fulfilled right here in this section um, you can see a lot uh, of the book of Isaiah that, that point forward to the perfection of God's presence with his people. Uh, a lot is quoted here in Isaiah 4, verse 4 through 6. It says, uh, this is Isaiah. He says, then the Lord shall have washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion. And cleanse the blood stains of Jerusalem from its midst by spirit of judgment, by spirit of burning. Then the Lord will create over the whole site of Mount Zion and over her assemblies a cloud by day and smoke and shining of a flaming fire by night. For over all the glory, there will be a canopy. Uh, there will be a booth tabernacle, the word uh, for shade by day from the heat and for a refuge and from and a shelter from the storm and rain. So you see that what it said, it says they will no longer suffer from any scorching heat because God will spread his tabernacle over them in revelation. That seems like a reference to what Isaiah is talking about. Then as Isaiah 49 says, Isaiah 49, eight through 10 says, thus says the Lord in a time of favor, I've answered you in a day of salvation. I've helped you. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people to establish the land, to appropriation, uh, to a, to apportion the desolate heritages, heritages, saying to the prisoners, come out to those who are in darkness appear. Listen, they shall feed along the ways on all bare heights shall be their pasture. They shall not hunger or thirst, neither scorching wind nor sun shall strike them for he who has pity on them will lead them and by springs of water will guide them. That is exactly what John saw. Remember, it says they shall hunger no more. This is Revelation, the end of Revelation 7. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst anymore. The sun shall not strike them nor any scorching heat for the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd and he will guide them to springs of living water. It's the exact same phraseology that Isaiah uses in Isaiah chapter 49, except here it is the lamb. Listen, it is the lamb leading the multitude of every tribe, tongue, tribe, and nation uh, to the springs of water and the sun won't strike them. So what Isaiah prophesies in Isaiah 49 as referencing to the, to the people of Israel, John 
applies this passage to the great multitude made up of, you know, Jews and Gentiles, many tongues and many nations. He applies it to them. So the promise that is in Isaiah 49 is fulfilled in Revelation 7 in this multitude. And then in Isaiah 25, we see something that we're going to see again in Revelation. He says in Isaiah 25, verse 8 says, He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away the tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. Uh, this is exactly what, uh, this is also a, a prophecy to Israel that uh, John here is applying to the great multitude, the multitude that no man can number. Uh, he said he'll wipe away the tears, and we're going to see that at the end of Revelation as well. But it's interesting to me, when you throw in this imagery of the Feast of Tabernacles, this is, it, it seems like this is what the Feast of Tabernacles pointed toward. And it's amazing to me, it's really interesting that Jesus even explained this on the last day of this feast during uh, during uh, his time in Jerusalem in John chapter 7. In John chapter 7, verse 37 through 39, he says, On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers, or out of his belly will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not glorified. And in the end of Revelation, it says, it's the Lamb in the midst of the throne that's going to be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water. There's too much imagery that's connecting here for this to all be coincidence. We've got the tabernacle. God's going to spread his tabernacle. we got the people holding the palm leaves, which was part of the Feast of Tabernacles. we got uh, the, the prophecies from Isaiah. Uh, three different prophecies for Israel in Isaiah are applied here to the multitude that no man can number. Three different ones. I read those to you. And we have Jesus saying basically in the city of Jerusalem to the Jews that were celebrating the Feast of Tabernacles, that he was saying basically the exact same thing that John says here in Revelation to about this great multitude of people from, from every tribe, tongue, and nation. He says, you come to me and I will give you the water that flows out of your belly, springs of living water. And it says in the end of chapter uh, 7 of Revelation that this great multitude for the lamb in the midst of the throne is going to be their shepherd and he will guide them to the springs of living water. It's just too many coincidences there, too many connections for me to say that uh, the the 144,000 and this great multitude are two separate uh, and distinct entities. Uh, one that is... Uh, uh, celebrating the gospel of Jesus Christ and one that is uh, looking forward to the gospel of some earthly kingdom. Uh, I, I deny that. I refute that and I, I reject that. And so uh, what we see here in the in the context of the passage is that judgment's coming. We saw the four horsemen uh, being called out to ride. We saw uh, what is coming. But here uh, we see that that judgment is held back so God's people can be sealed. And we're given descriptions 
a description of those people. They are they are the perfect Israel of God. They're listed by tribe. Uh, John hears the the perfect number of them, uh, exactly twelve squared times a thousand. The perfect number of them. And when he turns to see who they are, he sees a multitude that no one can number. He sees them from every tribe, every tongue, every nation. And then at the end of Revelation seven, uh, John applies three Isaiah passages three Isaiah prophecies about uh, about uh, the kingdom of Israel the kingdom of God to this multitude uh, in direct fulfillment of those passages so the, those who trust in Christ are the Israel of God they are the true and perfect Israel uh, it doesn't mean that uh, the church has replaced Israel it means that the church in Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of all that Israel was supposed to be uh, Jesus is the perfect Israel not uh not the church well, i guess you could say it that way but jesus is the perfect israel he is the fulfillment of who israel was supposed to be and everyone who is found in jesus is found in that covenant people they uh they come to him by faith no matter who they are jew or gentile and just like paul said in galatians 3 they are heirs to the promise of abraham